Well, good morning and welcome to you. My name is Mike St. Dennis. I'm the associate pastor here at All Souls Fellowship. It's good to be with you. Uh, as Evie mentioned during the break this last week, myself and our lead pastor, Stephen Good, uh, traveled to a foreign land <laughs> far in the West, a place called California. Uh, it was beautiful, but strange. Uh, uh, Southern California, there were mountains on one side with snow on the tops, and then, uh, and then the ocean, and then uh, an island with buffaloes on it, and In-N-Out Burger in the middle. Um, so it was a great time that we had attending a conference out there, um, especially being able to be back at the church that Stephen uh, came to us from, and be able to meet many of the people that had an impact on his life, and to hear about the impact that he had in that community. It was a great time. Uh, Stephen is still out there preparing for our Lent churchwide dis- the study that's coming up. So be praying for him in the next couple days as he's working on that. And then this weekend we came back and I traveled to another, even more strange land called Tallahassee <laughs> uh, for presbytery meetings, meeting with churches from our region together. Uh, and uh, praise, good report for the many church plants, especially that are going on in our presbytery. Exciting things there. As a result of being away, we had the privilege of being able to reach out and invite a friend and pastor and former All Souls staff member, Daryl Ford, to come. Daryl's originally from Michigan uh, and spent time in the Air Force. Hey, calm down, Vina. Uh, Spent time in the Air Force. God called him into ministry, um, uh, eventually leading him and his family, Trisha, and the kids to come to Decatur to plant a church. And after spending time with us here on staff, planted Icon Community Church, where he was lead pastor for nearly 12 years. Uh, He's now in his last year of law school, as God has been working to use him in policy change here in the city. And we look forward to the things that God is going to do next, using him and his many gifts. But this morning, we have the privilege of hearing from him. So join me as we invite Daryl Ford to come and lead us this morning. Appreciate it. Good morning. As I was uh, listening to Mike, uh, it's interesting, when I got invited uh, to come preach and I was talking to Stephen, I said, uh, Stephen, what, what's, the, uh, what's the theme? Like, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, um, it's Black History Month. We need you to kick it off. No, I'm just kidding. That's not, that's, that's not why I'm here. I promise. I'm not even going to hit you with that today. That's all right. I know some of y'all are clutching your pearls. Don't worry. We're not going there. Um, but I am reminded that when I first uh, came down to begin a, to, to plant and I would be asked to preach at different churches, I'm reminded of this story. I share it often because it keeps me humble. Kids do really keep you humble. And, and uh, I remember going to this one church in the city and uh, that, my, we came in and we're sitting down and my, my oldest daughter filled out a visitor card. She fills out the visitor card and on the card it said, what can we be praying for you for? And she put... Please make my dad a better preacher. So, to, to that end, I'm going to pray because I clearly need it. And then we're going to jump into the text together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all the ways that you show us and remind us that you are good, that you love us, and that you love us so much that not only do you meet us where we are, but you love us too much to leave us that way. Father, I pray that today, this very day, as we get into your word, that you would uh, illuminate our hearts and illuminate our understanding that your spirit would indeed superimpose upon us so that we would truly hear what it is that you have for us. 
Lord, I pray that we would see all the ways in which you are still reworking us. And so God, would you use your word to, to, to melt us, to mold us, to shake us, to break us and remake us to look like you in Jesus name. Amen. This text that we're in today, these are very familiar texts. These are texts that if you've been in church for any period of time, you've heard these stories and we get a good feel. We think we have a pretty good feel for what it is. There are two stories and one very familiar teaching. And oftentimes these stories are separated. They're separated as their own kind of separate things. And then we take whatever kind of rule we get from that or whatever idea we get. And we try to incorporate that. And sadly, we miss the nature. We miss the fact that they're actually not supposed to be separated. They're actually never supposed to be extricated one from the other. We're talking about the story around childlike faith, the rich young ruler, and what I would call the dangers of affluence. And so to that end, let's read the text together. And then let's walk through this to really get a a picture for what Jesus is saying about how we should view the kingdom. I think we miss it if we don't put this together. So let's read Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. It should be in your bulletin, starting with verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms. He placed his hands on them and he blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hopefully we'll see just how how important it is that we don't separate these three chunks of of, of Scripture. Because we often do, and I think 
we make the mistake and we miss really what Jesus is getting at. So in order to do that, let's just look at this first uh, portion, because this is one that, again, we're familiar with. What does it mean when, he, when, when Jesus says to bring the children unto him? Already we know that Jesus values children. Earlier in, in, in Mark, you see Jesus warning people from leading children astray. He says it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and and thrown into the water than to lead one of these small ones away. So you know Jesus values children. But there's something about, there's something about the, the attributes of a child that Jesus is commending and recommending be present and mandating be present in the way that we connect to God, the way that we understand our faith, the way that we understand the kingdom. So what do we see here? Verses 13 through 16, you see children that are being brought to Jesus. Parents are bringing their children to Jesus. They're wanting Jesus to bless them. They're wanting Jesus to interact with their their children. And we see in the end, Jesus doesn't just lay his hands on these children. The scripture says he, he blesses them. But for some reason, the disciples were looking at these children as a hindrance to Jesus. In a lot of ways, it's Jesus, we're here to do a job and these kids are getting in the way. Now, if you're a parent, you felt like that. Certainly. They're definitely like, okay, these kids are great and everything, but Jesus, you're here to do something else. So they're getting in the way and they're beginning to rebuke these parents. And Jesus stops. The word he uses in the Greek is actually very harsh. He's indignant. He's angry. He's upset that his followers, his disciples are starting to, to stop these children from coming. And that's when he says, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say you have to enter or you have to receive the kingdom of God like a child in order to enter it? That, that phrase, sometimes it can be hard because we will confuse or conflate um, childishness with childlikeness. There's a difference. We're not talking about child, childish irresponsibility here. But there's something about children, there's something about the way that they receive when they are in their concentric circles of trust and those that are responsible for them, they just know, I listen to this, this is my final court of arbitration. What is true, what is real, what is right, this is where I get that information and I accept it. They they may not always do it, but when they don't do it, they realize they cross something that is supposed to be true because they know to receive and trust who's giving those orders, if you will. And so Jesus is saying that something about, we're going to get into it, but there's something about the way that children engage and the way that children receive that is necessary for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to put it this way. We'll go back to this phrase over and over again. I believe what Jesus is trying to show us in these three stories is that the kingdom is not something that can be achieved. It is only received. The kingdom is not something to be achieved. It's something that is only received and received like a child. So the key to understanding this is found in the very verb that Jesus uses in describing the entrance into the kingdom. The kingdom must be received. So therein lies the question, how does a child receive? Well, the first and foremost obvious quality about children is that children are simple. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Some of y'all might mean that of your own kids. I'll leave that to you. Children are simple in the sense that uh, things are are uncomplicated. They they, they are very elemental. They go right to the heart of things. This is why children can ask very frank questions that grown folks got too much sense to ask. 
I remember when I was uh, in church growing up in Detroit, let's go Michigan, growing up in Detroit, and I remember uh, we would go, we, you know, in between services, we're kind of in the, in the hallway area, and we're talking, and I remember my little sister, very, very, very blunt, like all the harshness of my parents wore off after the three boys came through, and my sister just said whatever she wanted, it didn't really matter. And so we're at church, and this lady comes to her, really sweet, uh, exchanging pleasantries, and she goes to my sister Brianna, she says, she says, you are getting so big. And my sister looked at all oh, y'all already know. Sister looked up at her and said, you're getting so big too. <laughs> I mean, it was true, but we know better than to say that, right? Like we, we just know better. Children, there's a reason why they had the show. Kids say the darndest things because there's, a, there's an innocence about it. Whatever is real, whatever question they have, whatever they're wondering about, they just ask. Things that grown-ups have managed to evade for years, kids in a three seconds will just say. And I think there's something about that that Jesus is getting at. There's no, there's no beating around the bush with a child. There's no pretension uh, about a child. They're very forthright. And this is true in every area of their lives. When their bodily needs uh, make themselves apparent, <laughs> they are going to let you know, and they're not going to stop talking until they're satisfied, Right? I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like I'm going through some things with my kids, but I'm just saying, we know that this is the case with children. Because when they need something, they're going to let you know. When they want something, they're going to let you know. They're curious in the way that they think. They want to explore anything that's around them, and they're going to go ahead and just do it. When I was a kid, it, was not, it, it, seems, it seems logical to try to jump off the garage and land on the mattress. Why not? Kids are just going to go. If I think it makes sense, I'm going to try it. There's something about uh, children when, they, when there's something that they want. When they're sleepy, a kid will just fall asleep anywhere. And when they don't want to go to sleep, it'll be 3 in the morning and they're just standing there. My daughter used to stare and just breathe over me while I was sleeping, <laughs> like something out of a horror movie. Because when they want something, they just want it. They go for it. So there are certain characteristics about children also, in, not just in their bodily needs, but in the realm of their spirit and their mind and their emotions. There's a sense of, of wonder. There's a very expressive sense of wonder that you see in children. There's something about that, that, that characteristic that Jesus has in mind here. They're essential, he says, essential in order to enter into the kingdom of God. When you're concerned about your basic needs and you listen to the teaching of Jesus and you understand what he says about you and what he says about him and you respond immediately and wholeheartedly to it, that's when the door of the kingdom is wide open to you. Not only to enter into it initially, but to grow, to develop in it, to become whole, to become strong, to become healthy. And this is what Jesus underscores by this beautiful picture of these qualities of childlikeness. Childlike faith receives the kingdom like a child. So that's, if you notice, it's vitally important that we see these two chunks of scripture as it's a juxtaposition of two different types of faith. You're going to see the child that just receives like a child. And now we get to the rich young ruler. Let's look at who this person, this child is compared to in this story. You look at verses 17 through verse 20, and you get the very famous story about this rich young ruler. Jesus is getting ready to keep moving through his ministry. He gets met by this man having great wealth. How do we know? Well, we learn in Matthew's account that he was a young man. 
And in Luke's account, we learned that he was a ruler. So that's how we came to the conclusion that this is the rich young ruler, that common designation. And this man appears to be on the surface, a positive illustration of what Jesus just said. You might think that Jesus is bringing him up to go, and here's an example of what this kind of faith will look like. Because after all, he runs into Jesus, and he, he runs to Jesus in a way that's not fitting for somebody of his stature, right? If you were wealthy and of repute, you didn't run to anyone. People ran to you. It was actually looked upon shamefully to be one that would be seen as a person of great import running after anyone. That's why what happened in the story of the prodigal son, when that father ran after his son, he's trying to show you, he puts all these customs and courtesies to the side. I'll make myself look like a fool in order to love you well, right? This is what this young ruler looks like. So you might think, great, he's willing to uh, maybe put himself through public scorn and possibly uh, deal with shame because he's willing to run after Jesus. That's a that's a good thing. And further, he, he kneels before Jesus, presumably in humility before Jesus. And there's a lot about this man that does seem childlike, right? I, I don't care how I look. I'm just going to run after you. I don't care if I looked weird by kneeling before you and showing myself in humility. I don't mind that. That's great. But the problem is, this is where we can fall. This man is an example of someone who wanted the right thing. How do I get eternal life? I, I want to go to heaven. You know, we, 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 a lot of folks will, that's a huge part of like coming to faith. I want to go to heaven, even though we know that it's much more than just, uh, hopefully we understand that the gospel is much more than, than giving us fire insurance, right? It's much more than that. We're not just saved from something. We're saved to something, right? But, but here he's focusing on that and that's not a bad thing. So, so he does this. He wants the right thing but he asks the wrong question. What did Jesus just show us? The kingdom is not something to be achieved. It's something to be received. And yet this rich young ruler comes and what does he ask? What must I do? He's still running that race of achievement. Now listen, achievement in and of itself isn't bad. Functionally as human beings, that's how we get anything done. So this isn't a, a, a sermon to excoriate achieving. In many ways, the way that anyone achieves resources and achieves wealth is by working. That's not a bad thing. The scary thing is when you think that that achievement race that got you here in, this, in a worldly sense is the same race you run spiritually. My job is to do, to do, to do so that I can achieve enough righteousness so that I now am looked at God as one of his. And what you see here is Jesus begins to really challenge that because this young ruler asks that wrong question. How can I achieve spiritually then? What do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And we see this man, he's asking this question. And it's a great question. He's not necessarily asking, how do I have a happy life? He's not even asking, how do I have a good life? He has his mind set on eternity. He has his mind set on the kingdom of God, but he's going about it the wrong way, asking, what do I have to do to inherit? So Jesus challenges him first with this one quick line. He says, why, why are you calling me good? And I think that can be over. We can overlook that really quickly. He says, there's none other than God that's good. Why do you call me good teacher? And there's a lot of things that we could, we could get from this. But one huge thing is Jesus is wanting this rich young ruler to understand first I'm not just a teacher. And, and, and if you think that I'm just a teacher, then you shouldn't be calling me good. 
Because there's none other than God that are good. There are people within theological circles that would debate whether or not Jesus ever claimed to be God. Folks who understood this line here, they knew exactly what he was claiming. Why in the world would you call me good? Only God is good. He's, trying to, he's basically showing, I have more authority than just a teacher. I have the authority to not only hear the request of your heart, but I have the authority to read the very nature of your heart so that I can see what's needed. And you see that because he looks at the man. After he says that, he looks at the man in the script. He says, uh, he starts with uh, saying, well, you, you, you know uh, the, the commandments, right? You know the things that you need to do. Uh, if you're trying to achieve or if you think that there are certain things that you need to do, maybe even just to look like God well, there's nothing wrong with that. You know the Ten Commandments. And he focuses specifically on the last half of the, those commandments that deal with our relationships to one another. <clears throat> and the young man insists I've done those things. Jesus, I've been doing those things since I was a kid. Be very careful about trusting your spiritual resume. Be very careful about trusting your spiritual resume. You ever been that person or known that person that loves to remind you about all the things they've never done in order to serve Jesus? Well, I've never taken a drink. I'm not, if I'm not knocking you if that's you. I'm just saying. I've never done this. I've never done that. And in some ways, the fact that I have this really clean resume guarantees that I'm going to be accepted. It guarantees that I'm going to be in the right position. It guarantees that I'm going to be accepted and known as one of his because of this great resume that I have. And many times when when, um, people say that, well, I've never done this or I've never done that. And I, I don't have that in my history. And I'm like, well, that, that's awesome. But you seem to struggle with pride. So there's some things when you still need to work, work on. But that almost happens here. Because the rich young ruler is like, everything you're saying, I've been doing the things to achieve my salvation really well. Now, he probably isn't even being honest here because no one really keeps all those commandments perfectly. But so he may even have an inflated view of his own spirituality, which happens with us often as well. And Jesus looks at him and think about this with all of that, all the things that might be confusing in his own heart. Jesus looks at this man. The scripture says that he loved him. Hold that for a minute. He, He loved him. But what did love do? In many ways, the way that we view love is extremely dangerous because we seem to have this idea that love means only accepting you as you are without any change. I I, I know that this is the case because many times people might even be in a relationship or friendship or romantic and it's like, I don't like the fact that um, I'm being with this person and I feel like I have to change. Real love, I shouldn't have to change. I should just be who I am. Real love, I shouldn't have to make any real adjustments. You should just love me as I am. Real love means that, that you'll accept my wiring and that's just who I am. You don't know my Enneagram? I know I'm stepping on toes now. People worship that Enneagram. I'm a four, by the way. And so, and so, and so what we do is we start trusting our wiring as if Jesus didn't come to redeem your wiring. Jesus didn't come going, listen, I love you only because of who you are and that's it. We prayed it earlier. I love you and I accept you where you are, but I love you far too much to leave you that way. Real love changes, period. So consider what Jesus does here. This man 
clearly starts to uh, expose some parts of his heart that aren't situated correctly. Jesus loves him, and then he corrects him. He loves him, and then he corrects him. What's the last loving correction you've received? Can you think about it? Can you recall loving correction that you've had? I see a lot of husbands with their wives rubbing like, you know, baby, go on and tell them. Because that's really what love does. So Jesus does this and he, he looks at this man and he speaks. He has deep love and compassion. And then he says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. What does Jesus do here? He lovingly puts his finger on the idol of this man's heart. Because that's what real love does. Real love doesn't just accept and keep it moving. He says, absolutely, I accept you here, but what genuine loving relationships should look like is when those idols become apparent, we start talking, we start getting into it. Sometimes our relationships or friendships will be uh, rooted around something that's good, celebration, and celebration, vitally important. We need to celebrate things that we have in common, things that we love, holidays. Next week's going to be the Super Bowl, lots of people celebrating together, right? That's, that's going to happen. I think, what was it, several weeks ago, everyone was celebrating the college championship, Right? We celebrate things that somebody said, no, yeah, some teams lost. I get it. <clears throat> some teams lost. But, but we come together and we celebrate things around which we have mutual confluence, things that we have in common, things that we love. Nothing wrong with that. But eventually, those celebrations need to turn into courageous conversations. Jesus will always make himself the unavoidable issue in your life. And it will look like these hard conversations that you may not want to have, but thank God he loves you enough that, he real, that you realize you need to have them. And so he tells them, I see this hole in your heart. I'm identifying this idol in your heart. My question is, what idol would Jesus see in your heart right now? Sometimes, look at what he did. Sometimes we think there's no way that Jesus could say anything bad about me because I came and knelt before him. <clears throat> Excuse me. I knelt before him. I, I did uh, these, these acts of holiness. I worshiped really well on Sunday, preached a sermon on Sunday, sang in church. I served at a soup kitchen. I threw a backpack over a wall. I gave out turkeys on Thanksgiving. Those are all wonderful. Those are great. But that does not necessarily indicate much about what's happening on a heart level for you. And sometimes we hide behind these performative acts of righteousness and miss the fact that our hearts might still be so far from him. And so this young man, after Jesus exposes that, this is something that is easy to miss. Look at this man's response. He's already explained all the wonderful things he's done and how he has shown himself to love God and all these things. Jesus says, yeah, but this part of your heart here is off. You're not, and, and you need to do these other things first in order for you to show that you've given up these idols. And really that's a heart change. It's not the performance thing. Your heart needs to get to that place. This man listens to what Jesus says and he walks away disheartened and sorrowful. Do you realize that this is the only place in the New Testament where someone has a personal encounter with Jesus and actually walks away feeling worse than when they started? There are public examples where Jesus is in public with folks and he's, he's reading them through and through. 
But this is the only place where there's a personal one-on-one situation where Jesus speaks directly into their heart and they walk away sad, walk away disheartened. Only one to walk away feeling that way. How, how wild is it? He ran to Jesus with joy and then walked away with sorrow. That's what idolatry looks like. And that's the scariest form because you may not realize that that's you because again, the way you ran to Jesus is what you trust in. I ran to him doing all these wonderful things. And yet you get close enough to Jesus for him to hold that mirror up to our hearts. And now what happens? I think that uh, when you look at the typical encounter with Jesus, you see so many cases where people uh, have sorrow and that sorrow gets turned into joy. They have anguish and it turns into relief. They have despondency and it's turned into hope and yet here it isn't. That's what happens with this idol. And this specific idol is what you might call when you look at verses 23 through 25, the danger of affluenza. That's really what Jesus is getting at. And there's a reason. It's not because he's out here to completely denigrate having resources. That's not the question. We all understand that that's how it is. Our whole world works that way, right? In order to, uh, to get things, their achievement needs to happen. We need to do things to earn. We need to work. Those things are good things. But Jesus is taking advantage of this one situation to teach a deeper lesson. And that's why he says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, listen, this had to be shocking to the listeners there, much like it might be shocking to us when you really think about it. Because, again, uh, everyone knew that in order to get anything done, you needed resources. But what that meant is the people who would be indexed most highly were the people that had the resources. So the people who typically would be looked at as the ones to be respected the ones to have the highest reputation, the ones that we trust what they say, the ones that would be the best leaders would be those that have wealth. In many, time, many ways, people also assumed, we do this too a, l- a little bit, they assumed that, and, they, and I think some of this was kind of the Greek thinking that was still prevalent during that time, that if good things are happening to you, the gods must be pleased with you. So they brought that in and syncretized that into their Christianity and said, well, if good things are happening, God must be blessing you. That was actually a huge part of uh, uh, what would happen in some of the earliest Christians here in America. There's, you always hear this idea of the Protestant work ethic. If you study it, it's a phrase that people would think, hey, when you work really hard, God blesses, which means the people who are, who are, who are wealthy, it's because they worked really hard and God blessed it. And then the corollary also became true. So the people who are poor, it's because they probably haven't been serving God right. I haven't got a baby saying amen. I love it. <laughs> so so it's, it's obvious for them, they would have never thought, wait a minute, how dare you? How could you? They would have never thought that there was something intrinsically wrong with, with wealth or there's some intrinsic danger to having wealth. That, the goal was to always be, I brought this up in the first service, when you look at the Beatitudes and you look at the word blessed that's used multiple times, When you get a chance, study what that word blessed means. It doesn't mean the way we normally use blessed. The ways that you and I are prone to use the word blessed has its own meaning, and it's a fine meaning. It it really comes from the word that we use, uh, eulogy, right? It's a combination of two Greek words, you for well and, and logos, word, good word. There's something good that I have to say about a thing, I'm blessing it. 
That's what it means. When we say, I will bless the Lord, it means I will say things and extol the good things about who God is. When you give each other compliments, you are blessing one another. So that word is, but that's not the word that's used in the Beatitudes. It's a completely different word that means something very different. It's the word makarios. And the reason why that word is important is it was never used to just talk about normal people ever. Blessed, in that sense, was a word that the ancient Greeks used to define really three groups of people, three groups, three entities, if you will. The first were the gods, as they had the pantheon of gods. And the, ideas were, the idea there was gods uh, are typically transcendent. <clears throat> they don't have any real concern for the people in the world. They come in and dabble, do what they want to do. Then they leave because they are released from the cares and the concerns of this world. So there was an idea that that was real blessedness. How great would it be to just be able to do what I need to do and not care about what happens here? So the gods were that. The dead were considered makarios as well because they were released from the cares of this world. And then finally, the wealthy, because they were almost treated like gods because they had so much wealth that they no longer had to be concerned about that. So you understand how valuable it was to communities, to the way that they would look at wealthy people. Wealth was considered a blessing from God. Political, social, economic doors would open. But not only that, religious doors were particularly opened for the wealthy. And that's not that different now. I just want you to just be really honest. Think about all of your respective church backgrounds. Look who we typically look to for leadership in our churches. Hey, it's time to elect elders, the deacons. And if, it's, if it's elders, we, and again, nothing wrong with this, but it can be dangerous if we don't include some things that are hugely part of God's heart and attributes. So a lot of times the thing that takes precedence is, okay, well, what, what kind of business are they in? Are, have they demonstrated really good fiscal, uh, and that's important, fiscal leadership? And do they understand this? Typically, the people that we will look to to be leaders are those that are in that kind of strata. In other words, when's the last time we've been in a church where, and this is, this is not to denigrate any position, I just know how our society views them. So rock, me, rock, rock with me here. How do you view or how often do you see a church go, we've seen the values and attributes in this man or woman, and, and uh, they, we know what they do, they're a janitor, we want them to really be an elder in leadership here. It doesn't happen. You, you know why? Whether we want to admit it or not, the achievement, wealth, kind of circle plays really heavily in our minds and in our decision making, and it even plays heavily in the way we relate to God. And so here, when you see what happens, why Jesus digs into this, he's basically showing that, that uh, wealth, when you think of it that way, is not only a help at times, but it's a hindrance. And these listeners had to be, you saw that they were shocked. But there's something else we have to think about with, with wealth. Again, this is not to say that wealth is bad, but, but improper, irresponsible stewardship of wealth will suffocate the childlike faith we're called to. It will suffocate, choke out the very air. Wealth very easily creates the illusion that self-reliance is possible spiritually. Because again, you worked really hard to go, I'm, I'm working hard through law school and all these things. You have to work hard to achieve. That, that is true. You work really hard to, to get to the places that you're trying to get to. That is true. But when you begin to think that that same stick is how you endear yourself to God, 
is what it means to be one of God's children. We miss the boat completely. And this is uh, why it's so dangerous when attempting to enter into the kingdom of God, because you and me, we're going to be inclined to go, what do I have to achieve to get there? What do I have to achieve to get there? And here's the scary thing it does to you. Once you think you know what it is to achieve, wait for those moments that happen when you know you didn't achieve. The amount of shame and the cycle that you begin to fall in. All the things that you realize, I got to go back and do all those things again just to get myself back to the place that I was. Yes. Childlike, y'all. Let's get back. (laughs) So Jesus further illustrates that problem then, that problem with wealth, with this parable. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter into the kingdom. Now, some have struggled. It's a struggle to understand what's being referred to here because a lot of people have really tried to create a bunch of kind of gymnastics to fit this. Okay, what really was happening is he was really talking about something intense they used to call the eye of a needle to get a camel to go into a tent. There's really not much evidence for that at all. As a matter of fact, you don't hear anything until the ninth or 10th century of somebody kind of putting that out there. Then there are other things that people kind of assume. And, well, there must be a scribal error. There must be. It's not. It's not. What Jesus is really trying to show you is, as, as, as absurd as that seems, that's just how absurd it is to think you can earn your way into heaven. That's it. It is impossible. He wants that stark reality to hit. He wants us to see just how ridiculously impossible it is to think that I can trust my spiritual resume, my stick to me white-knuckling my way through or brown-knuckling my way through to get there. My way of trying to find and, and force or prove that I'm supposed to be here. It's impossible. Camels can't go through needles. Camels can't make it through in the same way that we in our good works can't make it through. It's humanly impossible then for the ones who trust in their self-reliance to get into heaven. That's what he means by wealthy people not getting into heaven. Why is it impossible? What do riches, what does affluenza do that makes it impossible? Well, it's clear that the context that riches and money and wealth and affluence uh, tend to, to, to destroy the qualities you must have in order to enter the kingdom of God. Why? They destroy the childlikeness of life. They choke out what it means to have childlike faith. And you can see why. Here's why. What affluence does, if not steward correctly, creates a concern for secondary and tertiary issues, tertiary concerns. That becomes more important. What do I mean by that? Well, wealthy people, rich people, affluent people, they aren't worried about where their next meal is coming from. They worry what it's going to taste like. If, if I'm uh, affluent, I'm not concerned about whether I'm going to have a roof over my head or clothing to wear. I'm concerned just about what the architecture of my home is going to be. Who will I be wearing versus what I'm going to be wearing? And again, these are, these are just silly kind of extreme examples to illustrate the point that it's just the nature of the beast. When I have a lot of my main needs met, I can worry about the other things. And I worry about those other things, but some other things start filling up within me. So the reason why you see in the Old Testament when the psalmist says, Lord, don't, don't make me too wealthy and don't make me too poor. If you make me too wealthy, I'll start to forget who you are. And if you make me too poor, I'll maybe rob and steal. This is, this is a very true thing. This is something that we wrestle through over and over and over again. 
So, so we have to get to this place where it's okay. If I have these things, how do I ensure that I'm not trusting in those things for my own salvation, for my own righteousness? How do I ensure that? And here's the way that Jesus helped this man ensure, or at least try to help him. Hey, any place where you have an idol, if it makes you sad to let it go, that's how you know it's an idol. If it makes you so sad that you won't let it go, that's how you know it's an idol. And for many people who are in this situation, that's the one thing they can't even fathom having to let go of or having to uh, let go of that as an idol. So one of the things it does is in many ways, it, it builds this idea that self-reliance is still possible. It, it also destroys the simplicity in life. It destroys the simple things that we have to continue to hold to and trust God for. But furthermore, here's something else affluence does. Affluence, when not stewarded well, it, it destroys teachability. Because when you have achieved so much and you have a record of achievement, uh, it's, you've been very good at ascertaining what needs to happen and what doesn't need to happen. You've been very good at making uh, good uh, estimated guesses on how a thing should work and it works out. You definitely trust in your ability to figure out what the right thing to do is. And so if that's you, it can be very difficult then when it's time to be taught something in your heart that you have ignored. Because it's almost like, well, you can be telling me this, but I can't see why I didn't see that. And if I don't see it, then it's probably not true. Because a lot of people, you know, if I have a company and a lot of people rest on my good decision making, a lot of people uh, feed their families and, and have built retirements based on my decision making. So if you're pointing out something in the way that I think or the way that I function that is wrong, that doesn't work well. That doesn't jive well with what my record says. It destroys teachability. It destroys a teachable spirit because it creates a false sense of power and authority. And so gradually and maybe not so gradually, that form of affluence enslaves those who are attached to it. It builds an increasing dependence upon comfort, upon the good life, until people reach a point where they cannot give it up. Till they get to a point where they cannot give it up. They are owned by their possessions. Now, as we come to this end, that's the reason why these last few verses are so important, because you, you realize now why it's important that we understand all this together. You see why Jesus is showing, here's the way faith is supposed to look, but here, here's how messed up y'all are. That's ultimately what Jesus does. Here's the way it's supposed to be, but here's where your heart tends to go, and here's the danger they're in. And they understood it, because as soon as Jesus says this and teaches this, they respond in a way that I think all of us would. So who can be saved then? Because Jesus, you just described everybody. Like everybody. We are, everybody's trying, everybody's thinking, and some, many people are assuming that what they're doing will get them there, and, and we're all striving for something. And you're telling us that our achieving, that achievement mindset is, is, is getting in our way. Who can be saved? Because we know that your standard is perfection. We know that you require these things to be true, but if you're telling us that we can't work to make them true, who can be saved? That's why the needle and the camel thing is so important because they realize it's impossible. And that's where Jesus says, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, Jesus is saying, replace your love and your reliance for possessions. Replace that with your reliance on me. Get to a place 
where you realize, and the only way you know that you're truly reliant on Jesus is to ask yourself, what things can I just not part with if I had to? Or what things do I seem have such a heart attachment to? What things ignite my greatest affections, whether good or bad? What things ignite my greatest affections? That's likely where your heart's greatest treasures are. The good news that nothing is impossible with God, we return back to this childlike faith, looking to God to do the impossible. And when we understand this, what a difference it makes in our lives to hold things lightly for his namesake, to understand that God has committed things to us, not that we might please ourselves, but that we might advance a cause he's given us. What, what, what's, what's the cause, right? He told us, love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. So whatever it is that I have, whatever privileges I have, how do I steward that in such a way that I can love God and love the neighbor in the ways that I love myself? think that it's uh, an incredible story when Jesus starts to point out just how bad or how scary that type of reliance on affluence can be for all of us, especially in a society where a lot of folks are doing relatively well, and so it can be really easy to trust in that. I want to close the message by reading Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6, because ultimately it's an exposition of what Jesus has just said here. 6, 17 through 19, he says this. As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life, which is life indeed." The man, the woman, the child who learns how to use what they have, trusting in God, trusting with a childlike faith and using what they have in order to learn how to be humble, how to be poor in spirit, that those are, those are the things that help us be rich in stewardship. So may we not let our achievement get in the way of our receiving God like a child again. The kingdom is never achieved. It's only received. Let's pray. Father, these, these areas that you speak into our hearts and that you show us all the ways that we, um, that we might miss you, that we do miss you. God, I'm thankful that your love is a love that changes and I'm thankful that your love is not one that just sits there and watches. God, I pray that even as we think through idols of our hearts, specifically this, this uh, achievement mindset and this desire for affluence or uh, the ways that we rely on those things, God, I pray that in your own ways that you would break those things, that you would give us a holy discontent around those things, so much so that we begin to ask, Lord, it's not necessarily what we need to do to be saved, but Lord, what do we need to believe again to be saved? What do we need to hold to and receive again like a child to be saved? God, I pray that we would look, look at children and learn. The fact that you use a child to teach us, I pray that we would learn what that childlike faith is. And God, I pray that any place in our hearts that we cling to that are not like you, that you would break those things that you would break our hearts for the things that break yours. 
that we would never be so reliant on ourselves that we no longer see, hear, or even love you. God, we thank you for your spirit, the way that you keep remaking us and changing us to look like you, to love like you, to lead like you. Lord, thank you that you don't let us go. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.